really exciting to um, have this privilege of actually finishing the, off our series on the book of Philippians, um, and I'm grateful to see that you are here, and I trust that many of you have really been inspired by the word um, by these last couple of weeks that we've dealt with it, about three months now, and also have allowed it to change and transform you, and I uh, uh, really believe that there's um, something more for you here today. Am I okay? Is it so I just carry on? Okay, so yeah, so I I think this is a particularly significant day in the sense that um we we close the series, but in preparation I've just felt that God is wanting to do something profound in, in, in each of our lives. And if you if you are wanting more of God, if this series has stirred you and um you're searching and looking at the word and allowing it to change you has like awakened a longing for more. I've really felt that God has said that you, you can have that. There's no limit to how much He wants to reveal Himself to you. There's no limit to the heights that you can reach in the knowing of Jesus. And this book is all about that. And it is an absolutely glorious letter. Today we, we're going to deal with the last um, passage, which um, really have two topics, which we'll cover just now and we'll look at. But in there, it says that there's a secret, a secret to one of the topics, which is contentment. But I really believe that the book of Philippians holds a secret to the happy life. It is the abundant, overflowing life, the life that Jesus has come to actually gain for each one of us. And part of that is like what we have sung, uh, have sung here today in these songs, is that Jesus was dead, but he's no longer dead. And he died so that we can live in the fullness of what he's intended for each of our lives. Now, not a single one of us actually need to be groveling in the dirt. You know, we, we're meant to be eagles that can soar above circumstances, not like chickens scratching around in the shallow shallows of knowing of God. And that the secret lies in that knowing of Jesus. And this book gives us the access into that. I just felt stirred to actually, for myself, I want to do this, and I want to encourage you to do this. Start your week every week reading through this book. I think you'll be a transformed person. You'll have a transformed life. Just in these weeks that we've, leading up to this, or months that I've been looking at, I've read through it numerous times. I don't know how many times. I'm not a fast reader, and it takes like 15 minutes. It's five pages. It is so profound. And every day, something else can jump out at you that can stir you and, and can cause you to live like an eagle above circumstances. No matter what happened the day before, if you start the new day with the truth of what is revealed in this book, you'll have a totally transformed life. We'll have the joyous, happy life that God has intended for us to have. Just things like chapter 1. What I'm going to just run through is, is a couple of these verses, which I'm sure many of you have come across. You know these promise keepers, I mean promise boxes that people used to have, verse for the day? I think a whole lot of them comes out of Philippians. If you look at these, uh, you know, Christian calendars and those little verses that's there, or diaries and those footers, so many of them come out of here. But you know what breaks my heart? People quote them without knowing the context. And then they are powerless. You need to know the context because they are powerful 
to impact and to transform your life, but to impact your surroundings and the spiritual realm around you. But if you don't know the authority with which you speak it or claim it, they actually have no impact. I think the devil laughs. But if you do, he shudders. And darkness has to flee because light is being proclaimed. So why don't you do that? Start every week with this book and see how it would transform your life. I really do think so. Things like in chapter 1, just those verses, memories that come out. 1 verse 6, you know what it says. It says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. It's not about us, it's all about Jesus, what he's done. It's, it's so refreshing, so incredible. What does verse 21 say? 1 and 21, uh, 1, 21, 20, 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Die, death, that's the ultimate thing that everybody fears. It's got no sting. <coughs> when you know Jesus. Nothing to fear. And life is abundance because it's Christ. So they all there, so many. Chapter 2, I mean, what a profound chapter. It's a thing that should revolutionize your life. Most Bible scholars say that this is the pinnacle of description of who Jesus is. We find it. But it starts like verse 3 that says, is that do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves or more worthy than yourselves. Do not just be occupied with your own things, but think of others. And then it says, in your relationships with one another, this same attitude should be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to cling to, to hold on to, to use for his own advantage. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in uh, being found or being made in human likeness, being found in appearances as man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of this humility of Christ, he has the right to have the highest place of authority in the universe. Because authority without humility equals corruption. Have you thought of that? That's why Jesus was given that highest position of authority in all the universe. Because of his absolute humility that he demonstrated in taking on human flesh, dying death on the cross. Therefore God has given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ as Lord for the glory of the Father. Amazing. Amazing. It's all here. It's here. So, so incredible. Verse 12, that in chapter, all of this, Jesus, then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let that work in your mind. I'm going to expound on it some more today, but they're all there. Do nothing out of grumbling and arguing. What would your life be? What would people around you say? If you come into the office and you've got this, I'm not going to grumble or fold fine today. What a transformation. Start your week like that. Chapter 3, it's the highest value of Jesus above everything. Nothing else can compare to the greatness of knowing Jesus. 
That's what it says. Paul says he considers everything as rubbish. Consider to the greatness of knowing him. Then he carries on in verse 12. He says, but not that I have obtained it yet. But what will I do? I will stretch myself. I will forget what is behind. And I will strain towards that which is ahead. And what is this goal that God has taken hold of me for? It is the knowing of him. It's not what I do for him. It's the knowing of him. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, this ongoing knowing of him, that is the very thing that Jesus took a hold of me for, that I can grow in that. Because the knowing of him is what transforms your life and empowers you, enables you. Then chapter, then chapter um, 3, verse 20, a verse that we should all know now. Where does our citizenship lie? In heaven. So you don't need to worry about this world that's falling apart. You do your part here to step Christ down through, but there's another place that you belong to. There's another, there's another authority that dictates your life and governs your life. There's another economy that is not found in this place that governs your bank account. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we expect a Savior that will come. And what is He going to do? He's going to transform our own lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. So even aging, even all these things, you don't have to stress about it. It's actually pointing forth to this glorious thing that we're going to have, a glorified, renewed body. Incredible, isn't it? If you live with that at, at mind, I mean, what is there that can bring us down and cause us to be discouraged and hopeless and not have courage for the day and faith to actually know that my life, where I walk, I'm taking Jesus, so things are going to be different because I am there. Not because of who I am, but because of God in me and what I'm carrying with me. But you've got to let your mind be transformed by it. What does chapter 4, 4 says? I'm sure you all know it. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety, I mean, Kathy said 365 times, do not be afraid, do not be anxious. He's there. All in this book. And why should we not be anxious? Because God has given us the medium of prayer, the gift of prayer. He says that because through prayer, you can make your <coughs> needs known to God through petition and with thanksgiving. And what is the promise that would come? The peace of God that transcends understanding will govern your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Beautiful, isn't it? And then it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is adm admirable, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Wouldn't you love to live next to a person whose mind is like this? So why don't you be that person to everybody around you? A person that has the mind set on all these things. What's going to flow out of you? Encouragement and so many other things that would just be so contagious and infectious. Chris was saying we love sharing as Christians, <laughs> and we had a mass spreader at Skoham, so many sick, but let's spread this. Let's be infectious with Jesus and spread Jesus everywhere, just by who we are, not by preaching to people, but by living out these truths inside of us. They, they, they would not be able to resist it.
was Jesus. The other thing why I think is significant is because today is actually Pentecost. So it's a day in which we not only celebrate the resurrection and the ascension, but also the outpouring of His Spirit. The very thing that's enabling us and empowering us, our helper, our paracletos, the other one that come alongside us and would make all these things happen, give you the power to live it out, is here. And I really do believe that He wants to set you free. He wants to empower you. He wants to break you out of where you are into just another level of intimacy with Him, another reality of living in His overflow of power and abundance. You know, he says that we should participate in the power of the resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings, but the participation in the power of his resurrection. It's through applying these things that you see the outworking of it in your lives. That is what it is, identifying with him. Then we're going to get to my passage. And do you know what two verses are in here? There's two here that many people love. Anybody of you know? And they love quoting it. Want to take a guess? Anyone? Okay, where is that? Which verse? 13. Okay, so it's, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what they love to do is place the emphasis on the all things. I think there's another emphasis that should be there, but we'll get to that. What's the other one? Verse 19. Okay, my God will meet all your needs in His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We love claiming those, even non-believers. But you need to know the context for it to be powerful, and you need to actually know that to apply it appropriately and to see the truth of that in your life. So we'll get to that today. Wonderful. Okay, so let's read this portion together, sorry. So verse 10. It says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things, actually, I can do all this through him who strengthens me, or he gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is what more can be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit. Amen. Okay, now I meant to say this before I actually read this, and I forgot, but 
I wanted to say, see that if, you, if I read it, if you could pick up the topics that are covered here. And they, they are two. There's two topics that basically Paul deals with here in his final um, sort of straight, uh, bit of stuff that he's saying to them, plus then a greeting. That's what we're going to be dealing with. And those two topics is contentment, and the other is finances, actually, generosity, and in particular, apostolic generosity. Now, what it means to be apostolically generous or apostolic giving is giving outside of the local church. It is outside of your day-to-day -day interaction with people. So it does not include tithes. It is not that you should do this rather than tithing. It is tithing comes first. Then there's almsgiving. That's giving within the congregation, within your sphere, within your daily activity of people. Generosity in that. And then there is where you give beyond your world into another, enabling people to take the gospel to other places, reaching and that. That is apostolic giving. That is generous. And, and this topic here is specifically about that kind of giving, giving over and above. Okay. So when I speak apostolic giving, that's what I mean. Great. So now what you see also straight away when you look at that is that you see that actually these both these issues, contentment and the ability to be generous with your finances, comes as actually examples of there's two people or two groups, that Paul's one and then the Philippian church, that demonstrates these things. And why they can do that is because they know that Jesus is the source of all their, their needs. That's the crux. So I've actually entitled my message for this portion of Scripture, is Jesus the source of all I need? And that is why they can do this. It's because they know Jesus and they have put faith in Jesus that he is the source of all they need. And so we'll look further at that. And when we started this book of Philippians, we said that the overall theme is that of joy. But I mentioned to you even last time that joy is not found in the pursuit of joy. It is found in the pursuit of Jesus. It is a byproduct of knowing Jesus, of finding Jesus. So if you want joy, pursue Jesus. That's what it is. And here now again we see this, that contentment and the ability to be generous does not come out of contentment, out of the, the, the direct, if you look in the Oxford Dictionary, it says contentment is to be satisfied with what you have. Now satisfaction with what you have does not come from having abundance. We all know it, we've seen it in the world. Those who have way more than anybody else are not content. There's always this insaturated unsaturable desire for more. It's always more. Rockefeller said, I asked him how much is enough. He says, just a little more. It's always more. You always want more. So satisfaction, contentment, does not come from the abundance of stuff. Finance, possessions, wealth, health, nothing. Fame, love, nothing. It comes out of knowing Jesus as the source of it all. Because if you don't, then anxiety actually increases the more you have because you can lose it. It's if you know that it is from him, then that's, that doesn't own you. You own it. And Jesus is in control of it. And then you find satisfaction. Generosity is similar. People are not generous when they've got lots. They're generous when they know Jesus. Because generosity is a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith in the provision of Jesus. And so... <coughs> We, we, we see that. We see it all around, that even this church, 
being commended for their generosity. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8, Paul speaks about the Philippians 2 to the Corinthian church, and he commends them where he says, out of your severe trials and extreme poverty, you gave. And they gave more than anyone else to his ministry. Not out of having much, it's out of knowing Jesus that generosity comes. Okay, let's go verse 10. It says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now, when, you, when Paul said this, he immediately realizes that this can be misunderstood. It could sound like he's being sarcastic. It could sound like he says, oh, you forgot about me all this time, but at least now, you know, at least finally you've come to my aid. But it isn't so. That truly is not the case. And he, and he disqualifies it to make sure that they don't misunderstand it by saying, I know, indeed I know, he says, uh, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. And what he meant by that is that, remember in those days, internet didn't exist. And there wasn't this ability to just do a quick transfer and your finances in somebody else's account, other side of the world. You had to find somebody that is reliable, that was prepared to take on the challenges of travel in those conditions, treacherous to themselves. So if you, you know, walk through <laughs> hundreds of miles, through terrain, everything else, heat, night, all this stuff, when you live yourself into that and, and think about it, it was dangerous things to do. There were bandits, and everyone knowing that you're carrying something, would have a, you'd have a target, a target on your back. So what he's saying is you needed to find someone. I know you were concerned for me, but actually you didn't have opportunity. But Epaphroditus arose, and he had faith, and God blessed him, and now... I, you could do that. So that's what he's explaining there. So then it comes, verse 11, it says, I've learned, so I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. Now before I continue, content, that word content, I just want to explain it. That word is, like I said, the English means just to be satisfied with what you have. But the actual Greek word that was used here to translate this concept is a different word, and uh, forgive me for pronouncing it incorrectly, I listened to Piper and got it from him, so, but it's called, the way that he pronounces, auto-archaea. It's auto and archaea. The auto means self, and archaea means rule. So it's actually a concept of self-discipline, of self-rule. So contentment is not something that drops into your lap. It's not something that one day I can lay hands on you and for now, the rest of your life, you're going to have this miraculous thing of being content with any and every circumstance. It is not. It is a partnership. It is a partnership between you and Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. They create the miracle to enable you, but you've got to live it. That's what it's about. And this is a concept that's actually throughout Scripture. We see from the Israelites being promised the promised land. God promised that it would be yours, but they had to go in and take it. They had to fight their battles. They had to lose some people. They had to, had to persist in it. Caleb, 85, the land is still there to be taken. There is a partnership. God does it. It's secure. It will be so, but you've got to live it. Places where you see Paul speak about that is verses like 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. 
Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, or other translations say, in vain. It says, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul compares himself to some others, and he's saying, I've worked harder than all of them, yet it is not me. Don't look at me, don't praise me for your hard work. It is the grace of God, but yet I did it. It's like that partnership. You've got to do it. You've got to work. Other biblical authors say the same. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11, you see Peter writes, and he says, Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to, to serve others, faithfully administering God's gifts. So it's God's gift, but you administer it. Okay? In its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should not do it as one speaking, or he should do it, sorry, as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So, for example, today, I'm declaring God's word. It is his words. Okay? The authority, the power is there in him. But I had to take that word and work it into my being. I had to study it. I had to listen to other preachers. I had to gather information as much as I can, use my ability that God has given me to think clearly or whatever it is. I had to apply it to, and, and apply this to my own So you can speak it with the authority that he gives. But it's his word, but I had to do the work. And so it is with each of us. All of us has God's gifts. Many things that God has invested in you. Paul says, let that not be in vain, without effect, the grace of God. So I will do it, but I know it's God's grace, but I will do it. It's that partnership, that dual thing that runs parallel lines like, you know, railway tracks. They both are there, and you've got to apply them. And live them out, and then you'll see the effect. We saw it earlier, like the work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's the one who says it, but you work it out into everything, every aspect of your life. Let it be expressed in the way you interact with people, the way you parent, the way you do whatever you do, friend or whatever. Let it work its way into that, like yeast into the whole batch. It's your work. It's your responsibility to do that. Okay, sorry. Ooh. Okay, verse 11 says, so he says, um, verse 11 and 12, you see here a repetition of the same thing, actually. So listen and pick it up. It says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, or the ESV says, brought, be brought low. And I know what it is to have plenty, or ESV, to abound. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So we know that when something is repeated immediately after each other in Scripture, it is for the purpose of emphasis and the importance of it. So this is a big point that Paul is wanting to bring across here to the Philippians. So he repeats it, and he makes sure that he covers all these bases. So he says, whatever circumstances, in any and every situation. Okay? Those two. Let's see. So he covers all of it. Then he expounds on what those are. So he says, being brought low or abound, well fed or hungry, in need or have plenty. So it's the physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, every need that you have. So it's in every and any and every situation. And then he says that he, he has learned contentment twice. Learned contentment. Like I said to you, a partnership. 
You've got to apply what you've learned. And he says, I learned the secret of contentment. So what are those things? What are those things that Paul has learned? I can ask you today, what are the things God has taught you in your life? What have you learned to this point in your life? Do you take note of them? Do you have them? Do you apply them? Then you will live victorious. So here in Philippians, there's a number of things. I'll just run through some quickly. It says in, verse, in chapter 1, was I mentioned already, verse 6, God is the one who started it. He will complete it. Put such courage and confidence in you. It's not you that's going to keep yourself to the very end. He will keep you, but work with him. The Holy Spirit, verse 19, is committed to us. You, you see that verse 12, actually, from that, says that God turns any circumstance, prison, into victory, into a gain, imprisonment, but the advance of the gospel. These are the things you learn. Verse 21 says that to live as Christ and to die as gain. Have you learned that? Have you wrestled with that? Have you, have you like, fussed with it so that it can impact and transform who you are? and the way you view life and things that come at you. That's what he's saying. If you do that, you'll be content. Verse 9, or chapter 2, says that suffering carries a glorious reward. Suffering for the sake of Jesus, not for your own stupidity, suffering for the sake of Jesus has got glorious reward. That's what it is. It says, um, verse 17, even dying in the service of Christ is something to look forward to. Is something to rejoice in. That's what it's saying. Risking your life, verse 29 and 30, is to be honored and to be praised and commended by others. That's things that he's learned. Chapter 3, he's learned that nothing can surpass the knowing of Jesus in value. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Christ has taken a hold of you for that very fact. Verse 21 and 20 and 21. Is our citizenship is in heaven. Have you learned that? Have you understood it? You know that your president is not here. It's not flesh and blood. It's Jesus. And take your cues from him and your commands and things from him. It'll be different. That's what it is. And you'll receive a glorious body. So wonderful. Resurrected body. Chapter 4. The source of joy is Jesus. You have a reason to rejoice always. If your source is Jesus, that's the things that you've learned that he's talking about. Things like the gift of prayer and thanksgiving, because it will fill you with a peace that passes all understanding. How, how desirable is that, to have peace in whatever circumstance? Even though everything around you can fall apart, you can have peace. When you know you can make your petitions to God, who hears, who is there, who loves, and who wants to respond. That's what Paul has learned. He tells the Philippians, have you learned this? If you have, you'll be content. Then he says, there's a secret, is the other one. Now, what do you think is this secret to learned contentment? I think it is in verse 9 of chapter 4 and in verse 13. Verse 9 is the first. It says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, all seen in me, put it into practice. That's the secret. Don't just learn all these things. Now you've learned it, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. It's a promise there. So the secret is learning, but then applying to your own life. And know the reference, know the, 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 
context to apply it accurately. Then it's got power. And then verse 13, it says, which is the one we all love, it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Okay, that's some translation. I actually really like what the NIV, new NIV says. It says, I can do all this. So what is that this that it refers to? It's not just random anything. That I can, out of my own bad decisions or whatever, end up in a situation and say, I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to, because after all, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Or come to a trial or a test or whatever, unprepared totally, but I'll be victorious because I can do all things in Christ. No, friends, it's not. It says, I can do all this. In other words, I can apply my Christianity in my life because Jesus has empowered me to do that. And because he's empowered me to do that, I will be victorious in overcoming. That's what that is, all things. It's the application of your Christian faith to your life. That's what the Holy Spirit is there for, to, apply, to help you, to enable you. That is all this, because it is Him who gives you the strength. Partnership again. Holy Spirit's there. He empowers you. You do it. Okay? Right. So in summary, contentment is found in knowing and believing Jesus. Everything He says is true. You can, you can bank your life on it. That's what brings contentment. He is the source of everything. And in actual fact, discontentment is idolatry. Because discontentment means I'm putting my faith in something other than Jesus. I'm trusting in something or someone other than Jesus. Verse 14. It says, so this is now about generosity and finances. We often want to try away from finances. Jesus never did. As a matter of fact, he spoke more on a topic, the topic of finances, than any other topic, if you take it as a topic alone. Amazing, eh? 19 out of 29 parables that Jesus tells has finance in it, speaking about it, the importance of money and how to deal with that money. So here Paul says some things around it as well. This yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. Remember I said in the beginning, he wants to ensure it again. He's not after their money. This is what he's after. He says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I'll talk about it now. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. This beautiful, beautiful line. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Make a study of all the things that the Bible says is pleasing to God. I mean, beautiful. Find them. This is one of them. Apostolic generosity. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Okay. So around this topic of finance and apostolic giving, there's two things that Paul encourages them with. 
well, actually three. One is, is, is that it's a pleasing offering, aroma pleasing to God. So this is a great thing to know that you live a life pleasing to the Lord. Like Job, the verse I like most about the book of Job is that in the beginning, he says to the devil and all the hosts, have you seen my servant Job? God is proud of him. He's pleasing to him. You can be pleasing to him. He loves you with a love that can never be surpassed. But you can please and displease him, I believe. You can, you can quench his spirit. You can put an ache in his heart when he sees all that is intended for you, but you just, it was in vain. His grace was in your life in vain. Or that it have a return and it will be pleasing to him. It's beautiful. Generous apostolic giving is pleasing to the Lord. Then the second thing he says to them is that actually it stores up an eternal reward for you. He says that which could be credited to your account. So generous apostolic giving produces an eternal reward, a reward in many ways, of which one is souls that are saved through the ministry of the ones that you're enabled to do. You share in the glory of seeing them one day in heaven. You know, at Skokham, we threw around some thoughts about what would excite you about heaven. And one of them is to be able to see people, to meet people that said, I'm here because you gave. I never know you. You prayed on a Thursday evening here in Pinetown for me and the other side of the world. You didn't know, but God used that prayer. God sent someone, and I'm here. Apostolic lifestyle. That's what it's about. And he says that finances can do that too. The second thing is, he says to them, that word full payment that he has received, is the same word as used, will meet all your needs in verse 19. And it's the word play rahu, if I pronounce it correctly, which means full to the brim. So Paul is saying here that because you made me full, God will meet your needs to the brim. He will make you full. That's what he's saying. That's what you can, you can earn through it. That's his encouragement to living a life of generous apostolic giving. I thought to just mention a couple of other things as well. It's not just here, but just some principles around this topic of finances. And the first is what you find if you look through Scripture is that God always meets generous, generous giving with generosity from his side. It's an amazing thing. You see in, in Luke 6, verse 38, it says, give, and it will be given to you. And then listen how he describes it. See this picture in your mind of somebody squashing into something as much as possibly can. This is a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's the way God wants to bless us. So release that blessing by being generous yourself. Because in that you prove faith. Okay, so I'm running ahead of myself. So then in Proverbs, Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10, we says, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits from your crops. Then your barns will be full to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new vine, wine. Proverbs 11, 25. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And this is way beyond finances, friends, and so many things, encouragements and all kinds of things we can do that doesn't 
take much other than faith. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. God rewards generosity. You know why? This is my second principle. Because God knows the power of finances and stuff, actually, and things that we have and what that has in our lives. So this is what God is saying. Because he knows how powerful it is. He says, Matthew, Jesus says, Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, whatever type of treasure, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's not a negative. He's not saying don't do it because it's going to go to ruin. Don't store up treasures. He says, just store it up in the right place. That's what he's saying. Make provision. Make provision, but in the right place. Because, why does he say this? say this. He says, because where your treasure is here, your heart will be also. So he knows the power that it has. So firstly, the implication is that your, tre- your heart should be in heaven, and therefore you will invest in heaven. Okay? But Jesus says, even if it's not so, just put your treasure there and your heart will follow. That's what he's saying. So both ways it's where it works, because he knows the power that it has. Jesus knows how easily finances and and wealth, and fame, and all these things, can usurp his position of highest authority in your life. So he calls you to be generous by giving it away. Because the more you give it away, the more Jesus will remain on the throne, and the more the river will flow. We'll never have not enough to give. That's what it is. Of whatever. If it's your kindness, if it's your whatever you have, what God gives you, let it flow. And you'll never have lack. Other principle that says, when, um, yeah, I'll, oh yes, is that it is part of worship. Giving is worship because it declares the worth of something. That's what worship is. So by being generous in your giving, sowing into God's kingdom with all that you have shows that you value God higher than anything else. And that is worship. And God says finances is a good exercise to show who who and what you are worshipping. And then, friends, this is the context in which you can quote, (laughs) and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you are generous towards God, generous in your apostolic translocal giving, God will meet all your needs. Beautiful, isn't it? Powerful when you know it. Great. So we will be generous givers when we have Jesus as a source and when we know that Jesus outranks everything else in value. That's basically what he is saying. Then there's this final greeting. And in this greeting, we see there's a few things that Paul communicates always in his greetings. One of them that I love is that it shows that Paul is not a lone ranger. He's not on his own mission and thinking everybody else can do, you know, they can struggle here or there, whatever. He's in team. He's always, he loves team. He loves the local congregation. He loves the people. He invests in the people. He believes in discipleship. He takes people with him. He mentions them in his letters. He mentions the partnership. He appreciates it. He expresses his fondness to it throughout the letter, and he closes his letters with that. That's what he is saying here. 
acknowledging all those that has parted with him and saying that they are sharing in this reward with him. It's amazing. He lives out community and the faith that you believe that you're not on your own. You've got to be integrated in community. Local community, that's what Paul's saying and reinforcing it. It was a struggle for him to get back from places where he goes back to Antioch. Thousands of miles to travel and all this to go back and report back and all that. But he did it because he believed in it. He believed in the local church and, and the value that it has in their fellowship and partnership. And he wants them to share in, in the abundance and in the overflow and what can be credited to their account. But then he has this amazing verse 22. He says, God's people here send you greetings. Okay, but there's not a full stop, there's a comma. And then he mentions these people. He says, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, that must blow your mind. Because before Paul was in prison, this would not have been part of his sentence. He would not have said that. It would have been the furthest thing from the Jews' minds, that they could be believers, God's people, in the household of Caesar, the very one that's persecuting them. So he is reinforcing the fact that he said that God can turn anything to good. My calamity and misery is turned for good here because people have come to know God. So that's what he's reinforcing. And he's stirring faith in them to say that you have a part in this glorious thing that blows your people's minds to think that somebody who has chased and wanted to kill and exterminate Christianity can now be proclaiming it, be carriers of that same faith and gospel inside of them. So that's how he closes. So from this portion, just, just of this of today's, we hear that and we learn that contentment, generous giving, both flows out of a place of confidence in who Jesus is, who he says he is, and believing him to be the source of all you need. That's the summary of it. But the whole book, friends, giving us so many keys, so many beautiful things to live this life of overcoming Christian um, reality. It's not taught and left there to be, you know, cerebral knowledge. It is to be experienced and to live, to be lived and to be impactful on those around us. Joy is found in Jesus. Contentment is found in Jesus. Generosity comes from Jesus, knowing him. And then the fulcrum, the, the very thing around which this whole thing you know, revolves in that is the humility of Christ. And we are called to imitate that humility. And in that humility, the, the essence of it is the submission to the will of the Father. I mentioned this, perhaps you've heard, but Jesus' wrestle was not about coming to earth and dying. His wrestle in Gethsemane was about the way. And that, friends, each one of you are going to battle with at some point the way of Jesus in your life. You're going to say, no, there's a better way. I think there's a better way. But there isn't a better way. Because our way is short-sighted. Jesus' way is eternal. And the submission to that way comes through humility. It comes through accepting that he knows best 
Whether I can understand it or not, he knows best. And one day I'm going to thank him for this very thing that I wrestled with now. Because I'll see the fruit that it produced. In my life and in other lives, this is all here. That is the essence of Jesus' humility that we are to imitate, that Paul teaches us about and tells us to do. It's here. And it's the knowing of Jesus that's the crux of it all. You know, we think he's taken hold of us for what I must do for him. It's not. It is what that I could know him. The doing automatically will happen. And it will be glorious and it will be wonderful and it will, will bear fruit. If we try the doing without the knowing of him, it actually is works that does not produce an eternal reward. It can leave hurts and things sometimes, misunderstandings. But if we do it with his enabling power and understanding him and our surrender to his will, like Jesus did, taking on saying no or laying down the prerogatives of heaven to become human, to die in flesh and be resurrected so that it can, you know, he can do what he is called to do. And as I said in the beginning, that is why I believe the highest place of authority is given to him because of his humility. It can never be corrupted. So us, among us, humility is what is required to have unity and have love for one another. It will be a testimony to the world that we are different. We are different and we are actually attractive. We are what the world so desire and wants to have. can be found in the body of Christ. Contentment is what people look for, long for. It's to be found in him. So Jesus is the center of this letter. Believing him. Living him. Learning from him. And applying it to our own lives. And we can do it. It's not because Jesus did it, we can't do it. We can do it, is what Paul is saying. Because he is the one who does it in us. Over and over he says it. But we've got to believe it and act upon it. Amen. So if the band comes up, I'd really love for us to respond to this. Okay. So won't you stand? I believe that as we've been going through this book, it's been a couple of months now that we've looked at it, it must have triggered something within you in some level or another. And I feel that uh, I just really had the sense that God is saying that he, he'd love to, to get you onto another level, each one of us. He'd love for us to advance. And so you may be stuck because you actually have never really surrendered to Jesus. You've maybe surrendered to religion or to a form or something, but you didn't actually know this person that you've surrendered your life to and, and given him the authority and the right to be the one that rules and governs your life and sits as highest authority over you and is enthroned on the throne of your life, take the, hand it over the controls in full confidence to him. So that is salvation. That is the desire to actually live the life that Jesus has won for us. So that is the longing to know that you belong to him, to know that you can apply his word because, because you've experienced him. So if, if that is you, I'd love for you to respond to this. And I'm going to ask you to be bold and to actually 
make a stand on it. So that's going to be the one. I would love for you to come and stand here. If you want to know that you've truly given, surrendered your life to Jesus and have the faith that he's given you his spirit to empower you to live. Okay? Then the other is, I felt that there are people that, that really are, are, are stuck. You, you have to struggle to see beyond the circumstances, to actually get yourself onto the heavenly planes, as it were, to be like an angel, I mean, an um, eagle that can soar above circumstances. Not because you know how to flap your wings, because you know the thermals. That's what an eagle does. He just takes off, and then he just glides to the top because he knows the spirit. And, and, I, and I felt that God wants to, wants to just impart another level of, of or another experience of his holy spirit empowering to you so if you face every day with negativity if you struggle to to actually have faith that god can change your circumstances and and situations if you struggle with with anxiety and fear you know that it's not just there's some anxiety even paul said he was anxious about Epaphrodite. i mean yeah Epaphroditus was almost died and it's not that kind of it's an anxiety that grips you that actually you know, you, you're unable to, to see logically and all that. If you've got anxiety, I, I believe God wants to set you free. He wants you to, to be overcoming. If you are, yeah, this, the state of hopelessness, not having the ability to actually believe in a better future. Not because the government's going to change. Not. It may get worse. But because Jesus controls your life. And, and if, if that is you, I'd love for you to come and stand here. And then I'm going to pray for both, both groups. But the thing is, it's not my prayer that's going to make the difference. It is Jesus' empowering, partnered with your making a stand. With you actually saying, I, I believe you, Jesus, and I'm going to act upon this. I believe you, and I'm going to work hard. I'm going to look at this book. I'm going to fuss with it more and more and more and other things. And Get it into the fiber of my being. When I wake you up at night, you can recite these things with authority and with power because you know where it comes from. That kind of thing. When you, when you really want it, it is your partnership. Remember that um, auto-archaea, self-rule under the power of God. Okay, so why don't you do that right now? If you, if you want to be saved, come to the side. And if you want to have a breakthrough, you feel that you haven't had a breakthrough, come to the side. 